if you seek to live as God intended. Those not living as God intended will often, not always, but often hate you. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you open your word to our minds and our hearts, and our minds and our hearts to your word. We pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, last Monday, the uh, Times newspaper had a headline, Missionaries Arrested for Trying to Convert Muslims, and it then reported as follows. Libyan police have arrested four foreign missionaries in the eastern city of Benghazi. They are accused of spreading the word of Christ. Under Libyan law, it is illegal to preach any religion other than Islam. Rupert Short, the uh, religion editor of the Times Literary Supplement, begins his uh, little booklet, Christianophobia, published just before Christmas like this. It is generally accepted that many faith-based groups face discrimination or persecution to some degree. A far less widely grasped fact is that Christians are targeted more than any other body of believers. There are figures from the Pew Forum and the World Evangelical Alliance estimating that 200 million Christians, 10% of the global total, are socially disadvantaged, harassed, or actively oppressed for their beliefs. But that, uh, sadly, is nothing new. The persecution of God's people has always happened, as you can see from our passage tonight, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1 to 22, verse 5, entitled David on the Run. For it's all about David's persecution and uh, harassment by Saul. So we turn to that now, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1. It's on page 244 of the Bibles that you've got in the pews uh, where you're sitting. And if you want an outline of where we're going and some space to jot a few notes, you've got that on the back page of your service sheet. And you'll see that my headings are first, the reality of persecution. Secondly, persecution and the temptation to lie. And thirdly, lessons to be learned. Well, first, the reality of persecution. The context for our passage is that David is already anointed as the new king, but secretly, so he's not publicly recognized as king, for Saul uh, has um, forfeited the kingdom because of sin, uh, but he's still uh, alive and ruling. And Saul is jealous of David for his defeat of Goliath and other Philistines after that, and in an evil rage he twice tried to kill David while playing the harp, he tried to kill him before that, uh, but God kept him safe. David's last chance of acceptance by Saul was through his friendship with Jonathan, the uh, king's son. But uh, that friendship made things worse. Saul now actually tried to kill Jonathan. So David decided to leave Jonathan and the area. Uh, and the last verse of uh, the last chapter 20, verse 42, says, He, David, rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And verse 1 of chapter 21 says, Then 
David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling. David has come to the end of his tether, and Ahimelech was frightened. But uh, before we discuss what happened next, let me just underline the reality of persecution and the fact that persecution is not abnormal for the true believer. I learnt uh, that lesson young uh, in the Sudan in the 1960s uh, when working in a Christian school in Omdurman. Um, one day the school was invaded by scores of Muslim youths uh, and they totally destroyed the school, uh, as was our huge mission centre in Khartoum a little later totally destroyed. It was an unbelievable experience with thousands uh, marching uh, actually against what was going on uh, at that time and surrounding the, the centre and totally destroying the, uh, the whole campus. But violence is not the only form of persecution. Uh, there's also harassment, uh, mockery, there's uh, false accusation and uh, discrimination. So expect persecution. You seek uh, peacefully, of course, to counter persecution and pray, says Jesus, for those who persecute you. That's Mark, uh, Matthew 5, 44. But Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And uh, when he, along with Barnabas, were having follow-up classes for new believers at the end of his first missionary journey, we read in Acts 14, verse 22, this is the follow-up teaching for new Christians, that uh, Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And remember how Jesus ended the Beatitudes or the blessings in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Matthew 5, uh, 10 to 12. But why is there persecution? Well, Jesus explains that. It's because Christian believers, by their words and lifestyles, inevitably challenge contrary beliefs and behaviours. Jesus says in John 15, 18 to 20, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that is a challenge to all those who do not believe that. And many don't like that challenge. Similarly, if you seek to live as God intended, those not living as God intended will often, not always, but often hate you. 
So when people know that as a Christian you think it's wrong to sleep around, people who are having sex outside marriage don't like you challenging their lifestyle, which deep down they know is wrong. And especially they don't like it when you have, as you do have, good social and psychological reasons. The same goes for cheating, for dishonesty, for fraud, for slander, for greed, you name it, for all sin. So you will get hated, not always, but often. Well, that brings us, secondly, to persecution and the temptation to lie. Listen again to David's experience. This is chapter 21 uh, and uh, verse 1 and following. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. The priest answered David, I have no common bread at hand, but there is holy bread. So the priest gave, this is verse 6, So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now, one of the reasons you need to read the Old Testament uh, is for the warnings it gives you. Uh, as we heard in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, Paul said that some of the historical experiences of the people of God recorded in the Old Testament, I quote, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And uh, when the people of God suffered as a result of evil doing or sin, he adds, this was written down for our instruction. The Old Testament therefore has warnings for Christians. And there is a warning here in our passage. It is this. When you're being persecuted in whatever way, directly through people or more indirectly uh, by the devil himself, causing all sorts of negative circumstances, you are open to temptation. In, uh, as Jonathan uh, reminded us uh, earlier on in the service, in his parable of the sower, Jesus talks about the seed on the rocky ground as those who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. That's Mark 4, verses 16 to 17. But uh, David is not being tempted to fall away like that. Rather, he's being tempted to lie, like uh, Peter in the high priest's court on the eve of the crucifixion. And uh, David is lying in this episode to Ahimelech, the priest. First, he lies, verse 2, about being on a mission from the king when he is, in fact, escaping for his life. And on that basis, he asks and he receives food. Then secondly, he lies about the reason why he needs a sword. Of course, verse 8 says, For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And Ahimelech gives uh, David Goliath's sword, which is stored at uh, Nob there. 
However, the narrative does not pass judgment about David's lying. It just reports it. But it does mention this man Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen, one of Saul's uh, senior officials. And in the next chapter, uh, we'll be reading how Doeg has told Saul about David's visit. And uh, you see clearly there how David's visit to this shrine at Nob was an utter disaster. For all the priests at Nob, including Ahimelech, were killed, except Abiathar, that's Ahimelech's son. And so you read in chapter 22, verse 22, and David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that's at Nob, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David's lying therefore achieved no good whatsoever. And after all this dishonesty, David is in a worse state than before because chapter, uh, our chapter 21 verses 10 to 15 uh, tell you, you can read it when you get back, uh, that David flees to Gath the hometown of Goliath, uh, his great foe that was. Well, what a misjudgment. Uh, and soon David realizes it, that. And uh, uh, you read there that he then has to act the fool because he's been a fool. And not surprisingly, you read in verse 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So you have here a warning about being vulnerable to temptation when you are going through hard times. And here the warning is especially against the temptation to lie. Now how important that warning is today when lying is so widespread in society, not least at the top of business and politics. Just think about poor Chris Hume. Yes, lying is wrong. The Old Testament and the New Testament make that clear. Proverbs 12, 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Jesus says, John 8, 44, that lying is devilish. For the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Paul says, Titus 1, 2, Our God is one who never lies. And in Colossians 3, 9, he says, Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And theologians down the years following the Bible have been clear, you must not lie. The great early theologian Augustine even commented, nor are we to suppose that there is any lie that is not a sin, because it is sometimes possible, by telling a lie, to do service to another. Now let's take some time to think about that, because it has raised questions. But what about Rahab, the prostitute, who features as a hero of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, which says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. That's the capture of Jericho. But in Joshua 2 verse 5 you read that she hid Joshua's two spies on the roof and then lied to the king of Jericho's men that the spies had left the house. So is Augustine wrong? Well, here are three reasons why the mainstream of the church can say he's right. 
First, it was Rahab's faith, not her lying, that was commended in Hebrews chapter 11. Secondly, yes, it is true that uh, some have argued that murderers and other wicked people, such as the Nazis in World War II and the enemy in any just war, have no right to know the truth. So the first draft of the new Roman Catholic Catechism contained these words. To lie is to speak or act against the truth in order to lead into error. And then it added these words, to lead into error someone who has the right to know the truth. However, after discussion and more thought, the final version of the Catechism cut those words out, namely, someone who has the right to know the truth. It now says that all lying is wrong. And thirdly, it is a fact that there are tragic situations, such as war, where individuals are caught up in a totality of evil, and almost anything that is done will be wrong. And so they lie. Now that is what Corrie ten Boom did, although her sister disagreed. Corrie ten Boom was an amazing Christian Dutch woman who helped Jews escape from the Nazis in World War II by hiding them in a secret place in her house and lied until she was discovered. She then ended up in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. But in her book, The Hiding Place, she reports her first lie to the Nazis like this. I began to tremble, not because for the first time in my life I had told a conscious lie, but because it had been so dreadfully easy. She knew there was something wrong with lying for all the good she achieved. Now surely that is why it is never right to call a lesser evil good. So again to quote Augustine, in these situations it is quite enough that the deception should be pardoned without its being made an object of praise. And that is paralleled, actually, with William the Conqueror in 1066, seeking, as he did, divine pardon for the bloodshed at the Battle of Hastings, rather than glorying in the body count. Well, back to David. Because Jesus never commented on David's line one way or the other, but as reported in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus did comment on this incident with reference to David eating the priest's bread. This, Jesus said, this is, for example, the Mark version in 2, verses 23 to 28. This, Jesus said, proved that meeting basic human needs, such as the need for food, trumps ceremonial niceties and rules, such as the reserving of this bread exclusively for the priests. Or in his day, it was very strict Sabbath laws. But of course, that only says the ceremonial law, not the moral law on lying, can be relaxed. Well, thirdly, what then are the lessons to be learned from this episode in the life of David? Well, you actually have a quite a good idea of what lessons David learned from Psalm 34, because the Hebrew tradition tells us that Psalm 34 was written by David after he left Achish. So that is after his experiences at Nob and then at Gath. And it would therefore have been penned during 
or after the period described in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. Just before we look at Psalm 34, just look at 22 verse 1 and following. This is uh, uh, back to page 245. David, this is verse 1 of chapter 22, David departed from there, that is Gath, Gath and King Achish, and escaped to the cave of, of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herod. Now David is a changed person. Uh, he gives encouragement to people in distress. Uh, he is keeping God's moral law by honouring his father and mother. That's the fifth of the Ten Commandments. Uh, seeking provision for their old age. And supremely is now wanting, verse 3, to know what God will do for me. No longer is he simply doing the first thing that comes into his panic-stricken mind. I wonder who needs to learn that lesson tonight. Perhaps in some way you are under attack and you don't know what to do. Well, seek God's will and uh, what he will do for you. You should pray for guidance and then trust and obey and expect God to answer. Because Jesus does promise, seek and you will find. So when David wanted to know God's plan, somehow soon comes along Gad the prophet uh, and uh, he reveals it to him. And David is, verse 5, told to depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. But what more precisely were the lessons David had learnt after his experience at Nob and Gath and that changed him? Well, they are there in, verse, uh, in Psalm 34. So in conclusion, do turn to page 463, page 463, which is um, uh, Psalm 34. And uh, from Psalm 34, let me underline four of those lessons that David learned, and so should we. Well, one, David had learned that even in the darkest of times, there is always something to thank God for. He knew that God actually strengthens your faith through suffering, through persecution, through hardship. So he says, verse 1, he now says through verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. Two, he also had learned that God does answer prayer. Look at verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And three, he learned that God, by his Holy Spirit, is always present to help. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps round those who fear him and delivers them. He delivers them from danger, physical danger, but also from sin, as the New Testament makes so clear by forgiveness through the cross of Christ. 
and four, he now says that lying is always wrong. Look at verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Let's pray. Shall we have a moment of silent prayer as uh, you respond to both the warning of David's experience, uh, recorded here in 1 Samuel, and the encouragement of David's reflection, recorded here in Psalm 34. A moment of silent uh, response as the Holy Spirit guides us and leads us as we should be praying for ourselves. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers.